we need these thick communities where needs are shared, where people know that being needy is not humiliating. It's our natural state for large parts of our lives. And only a community that welcomes need and has kind of the the density to support it. So again, it's not just on the husband who's supporting the mom, who's supporting the baby, who's giving the mom hyperemesis so she has to go to the hospital. That then becomes too much for the husband. There have to be yeah. people he can reliably call in. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and my guest today is Leah Labresco Sargent. I followed her work for a long time, so it was great to actually get a chance to speak with her. Um, We talk a lot about the role of women um, and how that relates to family and society. Um, And I think it's that community piece that is often missing from these conversations, You know, there's certain strains of feminism that can be very anti-marriage and anti-motherhood. And so I think as Christians, we, in an effort to reject that, can swing the pendulum too far to the other side. I think one of the ways that we have done this is the way that we idealize the nuclear family. Obviously, mothers and fathers are essential, but the ideal family really goes beyond the nuclear family. It includes extended family, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, and it also includes community, whether it's church community or literally neighbors. Um, You know, rather than fostering a culture of self-reliance, Leah suggests that we work to build communities of interdependence instead, which in some ways feels very foreign to uh, American years. But I think we've gotten to a place where uh, as a society, we've outsourced so many of our needs that we've gotten to the point where we'd rather pay a stranger than, you know, rely on a friend that we can repay. Anyways, lots to think about here, lots to uh, reflect on. You can always count on Leah for a really thoughtful take. So definitely check out her blogs and her books as well. We are wrapping up the season here. One more episode next Wednesday. Um, Also, happy one year anniversary to the podcast. The podcast launched, I think, like October 8th of last year. So pretty exciting to have put together almost 40 interviews in the last year. Um, If this podcast has blessed you, you can bless me with a five-star review on Spotify or a written review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at the Crab and the Cross Podcast, on Twitter at Mary Rose Depp. Um, and you can support this podcast for as little as 99 cents per month. Please see the link in the description. Lastly, as I said, merch is on its way. Uh, I had to figure out the best way to make that available. So I'm trying to decide if I want to make a website. But anyways, TBD, hopefully I'll have an announcement very soon about that. Okay, and now here's my conversation with Leah Labresco Sargent. Sargent is an author and freelance writer on religion, culture, and statistics. 
After her public conversion from atheism to Catholicism, she published her first book, Arriving at Amen, on the prayers that shaped her spirituality. Her second book, Building the Benedict Option, is about creating authentic Christian community. Her writing has appeared in First Things, Commonweal, The American Conservative, and 538. She also blogs regularly at her substack, Other Feminisms. Leah lives in Maryland with her husband and children. Leah, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I have to um, formally welcome you to the great state of Maryland. So you're not a native, right? <laughs> no, we moved here a year ago. Yeah. Where, uh, can I ask whereabouts? We're in Hyattsville. Okay. Okay. Mm, interesting. I, I, <laughs> this, if this is personal, I can cut this out, but are you planning on sending your kids to the St. Jerome's uh, school there? Well, so I'll say it's in some sense personal, but it's very public. My husband teaches at St. Jerome's Institute, the high school. Oh, that's um, great. And my littlest is starting at St. Jerome's. My oldest got waitlisted. Oh, no. So pray for us for next <laughs> oh, year. No. Okay, because I just I've been doing some um, interviews on education, and I I got to um, I recently spoke with Dr. Hanby, um, who like helped kind of create the curriculum. So um, yeah, that was really cool to learn about that. So I want to um, first just pay you a compliment because I there's like a certain type of woman that I admire, and it's the kind of woman that I feel like has the three things that I want, which is like marriage, children, and an intellectual life. And I feel like a lot of times it's either A and B and not C or it's C and not A and B. And so um, I appreciate that you've been able to kind of hold those two things together, like since you've, you've gone on to get married and have kids. Well, I think there's always an open door to it. I think it's, it's challenging if you know, having kids becomes a way that you feel more isolated from the world, which is easier if you live in a place where it's hard to walk or visit people, where there aren't many other moms around. But we're all made for intellectual work insofar as it prepares us to better know the world and better know our creator. Yeah. But I was thinking about this recently because I feel like as a woman, you're just inherently a little bit more tied to the body and to practical things because you, I mean, you have like a cyclical, you know, your body has a cycle. And then once you get into childbearing, like, you know, many women nurse a baby from their own body. And so they're so tied to the practical and so tied to the, the temporal that it, I can almost, it almost makes me wonder, like, is there a sense in which men are biologically more suited for the intellectual life? I think it's important to remember that kind of in religious communities, when people make a really deliberate choice about how best to live together in community, you know, whether or not they have this as their you know, motto, there's always an element of aura and labora, mm -hmm. right? That we we better use our minds and we better use our bodies when we use them in concert, when we're grateful for God's work in both parts of our being. And, you know, to a great extent, I think a lot of men and women, you know, find that that part of their bodily existence is kind of treated as an afterthought or a problem. I think women encounter this, you know, the problem more and men yeah. encounter the afterthought more. Yeah. <laughs> and in either case, you know, it means we're kind of drifting away from knowing who God is because we're losing our sense of who we are and how he created us. Yeah. Well, and I think to like kind of refute my own premise, like when we look at scripture, Mary is this figure of contemplation, like she's the one pondering things in her heart. And, um, you know, yeah, I guess Jesus is the one having these lengthy discourses, but she's like engaging in like the sort of intellectual contemplative life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So I saw um, the Barbie movie recently, and I saw that you had written about it, and the um, the opening scene, which isn't really a spoiler because I think it's in the trailer, but you, you see kind of the revolutionary aspect of Barbie where girls used to play with baby dolls, and, and all of a sudden here's this, like, full-grown woman doll, and, and, you know, you can make believe in things other than um, motherhood. And so it kind of gets me thinking about how play can kind of shape our reality and how we can kind of, you know, like toys can almost mold children into what they're supposed to be. And so I'm wondering, like, do you think, because we live in a culture now where there's a sense in which motherhood is kind of degraded, you know, certain waves of feminism have like sort of devalued it. But like, do you think it's a bad thing for girls to shirk playing with baby dolls? And, and, you know, do you think that like hinders their sort of maternal instinct? I think I think it's not so much that they lose by missing out on the play. I think they lose out if they see their parents react kind of in a distressed way hmm. with it. Um, you know, I we, we had the difficult position where we just hadn't gotten a baby doll for our oldest for a bit. Uh-huh. And I don't know what age we thought was like the right age for dolls. So whenever you kind of open the door to dolls, you have that question of what kind of body type am I showing my child? I, right. I don't like Barbie very much on that front, obviously. Okay. And then we saw her one day right after a change, pick up her wet diaper that we'd rolled up into a little ball and start cradling. And we're like, oh we're ordering a doll tonight, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> And I think it's because children, you know, want to imitate what they love in others or what they're curious about. Um, And so it's pretty natural for girls, especially, and for boys, too, to want to imitate what they see their parents do. They want to sweep. They want to cradle someone. Yeah, yeah. And it's when parents kind of take any of the ordinary parts of life and react as though it's unnatural or embarrassing for the kid to take an interest that it's destructive. Hmm. Because they're getting that kind of mixed message of my parents do this and it's not for me or even kind of the worst unified message of you know my mom feels bad about her mothering and she doesn't want me to do it either um and that's what i think is destructive rather than like are there dolls in the house or not though obviously if your child also picks up a wet diaper (laughs) and starts cradling like indeed get a doll (laughs) that's gonna be preferable for many reasons right Mm -hmm. yeah well it's funny because i think the way we play with baby dolls is different from the way we play with other dolls. Like I remember having baby dolls and I would pretend to nurse them because I saw yeah. my mom nursing my baby sister. But I also had whatever it was the Polly Pockets, the Barbies. And when I was playing with them, it was sort of like a different kind of, it was a less realistic form of creativity because they were their own characters. And I was having, you know, they're talking to each other and interacting with each other, but I wasn't really involved in the story the way that I was with the baby doll, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we use kind of other dolls as a way of playing with social dynamics, right? Um, mm-hmm. Of the relationship between the dolls and baby dolls, but then also sometimes anything as a way of right. kind of acting out maternity. Because I've I've seen my daughter pretend to nurse a panda bear, right? Like, <laughs> uh, there's just like if it's interesting enough for them, like, and I'm sure there's a little girl or even a little boy somewhere who's like tried to nurse a truck. Right. Like if if you love it, you hold it tenderly, you try and do tender things for the toy. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about how, you know, there, there's sort of the, the joke. One of the big jokes in the movie is like the fact that, you know, yeah, Barbie's a, a female, but she doesn't really have, you know, genitals like she's not a, a sexualized being in that way. There's something almost kind of asexual about her. And you know, and especially evidenced by the fact that she doesn't really have much interest in Ken. Like, he's kind of, you know, an accessory to her lifestyle. Um, and, and I feel like there's a way in which kids, like, 
they learn this kind of gendered play and like gender roles, but they're not, even though gender is so tied to biology, like I feel like for a kid, they don't, that's not their first entry of connection. Like they're aware that they're a girl, but they don't, or they're where they're, they're a boy, but they don't reduce it to the specific body parts. I don't know, maybe that, if that's your experience with kids or, or, or not. Yeah, you know, I think for kids, you know, they're really interested in how to categorize the world because mm -hmm. they're actively trying to make sense of it. Um, and kind of the axes they're trying to divide it along don't always correspond with grown-ups axes. And they're really curious and they, they have a hunger to bring their, you know, map into alignment with ours and into reality um, because, you know, they want to know the world. I think there's this tension between like kids' creativity when people are like, well, you know, they have this wrong thing, you know, and I want to appreciate it, right? Like, um, and there's there's a like level of place for that. But what the kid has a hunger for is reality. Mm. And to some extent, parents aren't doing right by their kids when they see them kind of stumbling in their attempt to put together parts of the world and then not offering actual guidance rather than just, you know, you know, a kid who's like a dog is a fish. It's a little funny, but at some point the kid wants you to clarify what the difference is. Mm, yeah. But then at the same time, it seems like, um, you know, fairy tales and, and make believe are, are like the realm that children thrive in. So it's like, they're trying to categorize the world they want. They're trying to understand reality. But then as they get maybe into the elementary school age, they almost want to go back into fantasy land and, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so there's there's a thing, you know, the Maria Montessori and have the Montessori mindset for education say, which really surprised me when I encountered it, which is like no made up stories for kids when they're really little. And I was like, uh -huh. what? Like no magic, like no imaginary creatures. And their reasoning is, you know, part of the, the magic of a fairy tale or of a fantasy story is knowing it's slightly different from reality, mm -hmm. recognizing what's playful about it. Mm -hmm. And for a very little kid, that element of the story and part of the enchantment of the story is missing because they don't know what's real yeah. yet. You know, a unicorn is fascinating partly because it isn't a horse like and right. isn't every day. And so their claim, and I, I'm not taking a strict doctrinaire line on this in my house, but is that, you know, children need the foundation of what's real. And then, like you're saying, they kind of come to fantasy and come to magic or these more fanciful stories because once you have that foundation of the real, you can appreciate departures from it and see what they're where they're deliberate or what they're doing in the same way that very little kids can't tell jokes right yeah. like or laugh <laughs> at them except socially because a joke depends on kind of setting up an expectation and subverting it mm -hmm. and you have to know what the expectation is to find a joke funny right that's so true yeah I mean it's interesting to figure I mean does does Montes Maria Montessori say about what age she thinks that children are kind of cognitively ready for that I do not recall, okay. unfortunately. Okay. And I think my kids are like, you know, younger than it, obviously. Okay. So I've got a little time to figure it out. Right. But it, I mean, it is true because I, I was talking to my, my niece is four and I was trying to like explain prayer to her. And she's like, and she like kind of conceptually gets, she, she was like very much connected with Mary, maybe, maybe because of the feminine, but she's like, we, we, I, I was babysitting. I was like watching them. Um, they were staying at my house while my sister and her husband were on vacation. And so I was like, we're doing bedtime prayers. And she's, her prayer would be like, Mary, I, I wish that you were part of our world. And she just had this sense of mm -hmm. like, there's another world out there. And that's kind of where God and Mary and the angels and stuff are. And like, but it was interesting to think like, cause four is pretty, pretty young that she can even conceive of like another reality that she's not grasping. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah. So one of the things that I'm noticing in kind of Christian culture right now is like a very kind of reactionary, you could maybe say reactionary anti-feminism, but it feels like it's going so far in the other direction. You kind of have this trad wife sort of, um, I don't know, almost, almost feels fetishy to me. Maybe that's that's too strong of a term, but like, you know, there's these women who are sort of coming out as a trad wife and bragging about how much they serve their husbands and how much they, you know, resent any type of work outside the home. I'm wondering from your perspective, especially since you kind of came from a more secular world and like entered into Christianity um, at a later time in life, did you notice like just stepping into Christianity? Did you, did you feel that stiflement of like your sort of feminine aspirations? Like, did you feel like you had to grow into kind of a Christian feminism or did you find it was pretty naturally present? I think one thing I'm very grateful for in the Catholic church is the example of the saints, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I think we often hear we can take Mary as our model, and that's true. Um, But that doesn't always kind of answer questions easily about how to live in a different context or faced with a different problem. Um, And so what we have, in addition to her, is this kind of mosaic of all these different holy men and women who lived very different lives. You know, you have saints who led armies into battle, like Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. You have saints who refused to fight in a war. You have saints who are married, like Louis and Zélie Martin. You have saints who were martyred rather than be married. And you might say, like, what unifies these people? And it's that they put Christ first above everything else. Mm. And they, they did what was right in their particular situation or station in life because they were centered on him. And that kind of suggests we don't kind of get our sense of how to be a wife just from, certainly not from just an influencer on Instagram or Twitter. Um, we get it first from God and from Christ. So you start with just what kind of spiritual life will support me in being a saint, even if I don't know what kind of saint God wants me to be. Hmm. Um, And that kind of indicates also that there are a lot of ways to get to heaven, right? You know, (laughs) the, it's not that it's easy, but it's also that it's a little unpredictable. And again, it's that sense of, you know, to go back to then to Mary's example, the important thing is the fiat to God, you know, not knowing necessarily what his will is and knowing that it may be different for you, for me, for my neighbor, um, and being prepared to conform to his designs, which might ask us to be braver than we want to be, more secluded than we want to be. You know, you can't just kind of turn the dial in just one direction and assume that's what God wants. Right. What would you say that to people who look at scripture, you know, especially some of the statements of Paul, and they say, well, to be a holy woman, you give a fiat to God, but then you give a fiat to your husband, and he kind of tells you then what your path is to be. <laughs> I mean, you definitely do give a fiat to your husband. It just yeah. definitely should be a different one than you give to God, right? right. <laughs> or else you're, you know, or else you're not treating God or your husband as who they are, and yeah. it's not fair to your husband, and it's blasphemous towards God. Hmm. Um, you know, you want a marriage to be a situation of real trust, um, where you know, are there moments where I defer to my husband, you know, against what would be my judgment alone? Definitely, like, and I married him in part because I trust him enough that you know. That's what I want to do in some cases. You know, when you have a friend who knows you very well outside of marriage, even without kind of a, a hierarchy, there are moments you say, you know what? I trust this friend who knows me so well that sometimes I would make a different choice, but I actually trust they know what's right for me when mm. you know my dis- my view is less clear. Um, and I think the same can be true within marriage, and that can go with either direction. And I think partly it's spending time in marriage and growing in marriage that gives you that sense, you know, 
not just of submission to take the the kind of the term that raises people's hackles a little bit, but just trust, right? Like, yeah. and a trust that isn't just we're always exactly in alignment in terms of a particular choice, but we are in alignment in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I take some risks and he takes some risks for me that we take because we're married and because we trust each other. Right. Well, I think that's beautiful because, yeah, there's different ways of being in relation to somebody and certainly like, you know, having kind of a subject master is a type of relationship, but a relationship of trust is probably the, uh, the most intimate form of relationship. And it's, the, it's, it's kind of what the saints mean when they talk about submitting to God. It really means trusting God. It doesn't mean um, you, le- you no longer have free will or you no longer um, you know, think for yourself, but it's kind of something more, almost more difficult, more profound, because it's actually pretty easy to just do whatever somebody tells you. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> But to trust... You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't profit very much by it, even if they were right, if you were just deferring and not actively learning from it, right? Mm-hmm. Like you think about a student and a teacher for a different hierarchical relationship where we do think one person like knows more than the other. Yeah. If the student is just deferring, but not thinking, they're not learning. Um, right. The, it's about kind of, not just conforming to what someone tells you, but of, you know, changing, right? Yeah. Being transfigured by that relationship. Right, right. Which is then beautiful because in a marriage, like you're supposed to be a one flesh, which is a kind of signifies a type of transfiguration to one another, but then it's an analogy for Christ in the church. So then you're becoming further transfigured to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, it's beautiful. And I think, I think partly within marriage, like, part of the training we get in how to relate to God is that sense of we want to die to self, right? Um, and that sometimes, you know, we want to give something up, you know, not even because it's wrong, but for the sake of putting our marriage above this thing we want, of putting God above this thing we want. Um, and it's not that the things we want are bad, right? It's just that we want to have the the sense of when I, am I making sure I'm putting higher goods above lesser goods? I'm not letting lesser goods eclipse higher goods. Yeah, for sure. And and it's not that we have this huge marriage of self-denial, like we have ice cream frequently. Like it's just that whenever something is hard, we really want to do it for the sake of each other and for the sake of the marriage. Yeah, definitely. Have you found, because I know with your your Substack, you know, you, you, you pulled out this quote from Ross Douth that, um, that was sort of your inspiration, this, this kind of other... Con- this conservative feminism that you, he kind of mentioned, like Amy Coney Barrett as sort of this paragon like sh- and you know she's somebody who she's a wife she's a mother of many kids and she's a supreme court justice which is like you know total boss babe whatever you want to call it um but like have you have you found that there, like in your own life like trying to figure out work-life balance have you found that there's a tension within yourself of trying to be wife and mom versus you know, having and worker, right? Like three, three big domains that I do stuff in. Absolutely. And I think one thing that's important from Amy Coney Barrett's example is that she has help, right? Like Mm. she lived in a a kind of thick Catholic community where people looked out for each other. It wasn't just her nuclear family as an island in a town. But more than that, I think there was a, a sister to her, her husband, I forget who, who just came and helped raise the kids, right? Hmm. Like, and that's the more natural model of family life where the weight of the children isn't being borne solely by the parents and they're kind of different seasons of your life where right now I'm in the very needy season where I have two kids who are three and one. And when I'm 
you know, 50. Um, I'll presumably not have as many kids who are quite as young, <laughs> right. uh, unless dad surprises me. <laughs> and then I'll be better able to do things for other people that I'm currently relying on others to do for me. So you get that kind of change in the seasons of your life. And so for my life, you know, what I've been trying to do even over the last few months is think, how can I kind of give myself most fully to each thing I'm doing? I don't want to do as much working with my littlest daughter in the home because I'm not doing neither my work nor taking care of her as well. And even though it made me a little sad to do it, having her go to an in-home daycare in our neighborhood, you know, for a couple hours meant I got a lot more done. And when I came back, she came back, I was able to give her my intention fully instead of feeling like I was pulled in different directions. Right. I think that's that question, not just of how do I do everything? How do I satisfy everything? But what help do I need so I can give each of these tasks the attention they deserve? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, but there seems to be this like... In, in the way that people hold up the nuclear family, there seems to be this aversion to the sort of village helping to raise the child. Um, and I'm not really sure where that kind of isolation comes from. I think it's partly, you know, that, well, I think some of it, this is a hobby horse of mine, is zoning, um, in yeah. that it's really hard to plan to live near people. Um, mm. You know, if housing is kind of, limited in quantity. You can't move to where your parents were because when your parents bought there, they could afford to. And even if you're doing better than them, now you can't. Mm. Um, that breaks down family bonds, right? So I, I think there's some material you know, um, cont contributions here, but I think there's also that people are increasingly ashamed of their need um, mm. and think that, you know, I think sometimes that it's you know better to pay someone to do this than to ask someone mm. Um yeah. In part, because a, a commercial relationship is a cleaner relationship. And we do yeah. pay babysitters, you know, to come over, watch our kids. But we could ask another family um, to, like, send over one spouse to sit <laughs> in our house while our girls are asleep and we go out to a movie. And then we do it for them one time that month. Right. And I think most people find it much more natural to call a babysitter because you solve that with money. And kind of putting a need before a friend feels more vulnerable. Right. No, that's 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 really true, I think. And and I don't know to what extent that's like a very American thing, especially because we are really we're really good at commodification, you know. Um, but it you know, it does it does strike me as a little bit unnatural. And it and it's kind of funny because I mean, I, people have their criticisms of daycare and I think there's a lot of legitimate criticisms of daycare. But it's funny that, you know, you you like can you have the same criticism of, of outsourcing to grandma, you know, or mm -hmm. auntie, like to come and watch the kids a couple times a week, right? And I've seen people make that criticism where kind of sometimes mothers will get praised so effusively uh, that you're not helping, right? Like only a mother can do these things, uh, but a mother has to sleep, has to, even <laughs> if you don't take a job or you, you have the freedom economically not to do that, you know, if you keep having kids, there will be moments where you can't do for each kid what they want for you, from you in that moment. And mm -hmm. part of the question is how you're sharing that load and with whom. Right. Um, and when it's family, you know, there's a real tension, I think, between whether we're telling a story about grandparents, about brothers and sisters, where taking care of their relatives you know, isn't a trivial ask, but it's a, a burden that also is a balm, right? Like, it gives me joy to take care of my family. And we have that expansive right. sense of my family where my nieces and nephews are my family who I might make sacrifices for. Um, 
Or we talk about it as like, well, you can't just treat your parents like unpaid help. Where we say, <laughs> if you would pay someone to do this, then when you don't pay someone, you're slighting them. Or mm. your family's worked all this way. They've supported you. Now is their free time in their retirement. Like they shouldn't have to take care of their grandkids, which again implies that it's bad to have grandkids, right? Right. Well, and it kind of makes everything into this sort of economic relationship. And I and I see this even a little bit with the debate about whether or not women should work outside the home, because I think, well, humans have had very different economic, you know, lived in different economies. We've been, uh, you know, nomadic and we've been agrarian and now we're in kind of an information economy. And like, there's always been work to do, whether it was men doing work or women doing work, whether it was picking berries or washing, you know, clothes at the river or, you know, like, so there's this sense now, I think now because of the economy we live in now, like work is associated with something that gives you a salary or something that gives you a paycheck. Um, and so we, we sort of, it, it's sort of a, a uh, the question is based on like a bad premise because it's like, well, what is work, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think part of what happens also is that I, I don't always like the wages for housework kind of way of framing what the value is here. Right. Um, Cause I just think it speaks to the fact we've, we've got a very thin language for talking about the value of what we do for each other. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm in favor of things like large baby bonuses. I think when people have a baby, you know, that makes them vulnerable in the same way that being elderly makes you vulnerable. And it's a time when your ability to earn wages is depressed, just like it is by disability or age. And it should be a time when if we have a safety net, this is a moment where the safety net springs in and cushions that blow. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not that I'm not in favor of giving people money for having kids, but <laughs> I don't like framing it as a wage. Um, mm. And the reason is you you don't clock out. You're not, I don't have the kind of adversarial relationship with my kids <laughs> that I sometimes have in a workplace where I'm negotiating for my benefit contra the employees we're trying to meet in the middle. And it, I also just don't find this as a reasonable way to denominate my time, right? Like you can say, you know, here's what the cost of breastfeeding is in terms of foregone wages. That can be helpful to make the problem concrete to someone who hasn't done it and just doesn't know what does it mean to spend this much time doing it. Um, right. But I'm not sitting there thinking of like dollars and cents running up a little counter and thinking that way as a way of awakening my political consciousness like <laughs> brings me away from what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it's good. It's good that you're not quantifying like every every moment of, you know, how much money you could be earning because that would be really... Really and I think people turn to the numbers because they sound objective, yeah. right? You can say, I forwent this much in wages to breastfeed my child. Therefore, you know, I need people to recognize the weight of the foregone wages. Right. Um, but we need ways to recognize the worth of what we do for each other that aren't denominated in purely economic terms. And I, I don't think, you know, I don't think a mother who felt kind of exhausted and overworked from nighttime shifts would want, you know, her husband to show up and say like, I have like hazard pay for you or overtime pay for you. Like for one thing, they should have combined <laughs> finances. So the idea of the husband compensating the mom is already very weird, right? Right, right. But, <laughs> but you, you kind of only want the money, you know, as the sign of value because you're not already experiencing it as being valued. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm curious because you wrote, um, If I correct me if I'm wrong, but you wrote building the Benedict option before, I, I know you've talked about some of your fertility struggles, but before you had any live birth children, is that correct? That's right. I, I finished it. Um, I think I turned in the manuscript before I was married, though I had oh, kind really? of editing oh, help wow. along. It takes a long time for a book to come out. <laughs> like I believe I was doing editing with my husband prior to our marriage and we got wow. the books 
while we were married, but I don't remember for sure. Okay. So I'm curious now that you will, now that you're a married and B have, you know, two children at home that you're caring for, like, has that shaped any of your, your views now that you wrote in the book about how to have Christian community, um, especially in light of what we were just talking about with like the need for, for assistance in so many ways? Yeah. You know, I think part of, part of the way of thinking about this is something I've borrowed from O. Carter Sneed, who wrote a really excellent book, What It Means to Be Human, which is my favorite book I read that oh, year okay. when I read it, um, you know, is that we we can sometimes be tempted to deny like how needy a child is or how needy a child makes us. Um, and what he says is, you know, the child has a legitimate claim on its mother by virtue of its need. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mother is made needy and vulnerable by that child's need. And then she has a legitimate claim on the people around her, right? Kind of most obviously on her husband and also her family and also to some extent her neighbors. You know, the child has this very, I my need can be met by no one but you, especially in utero. And the mom right. has this more diffuse need. Several people can meet it. So you almost have the bystander effect of, so each of them can more easily say no versus for the mom to say no to her child requires a knife, poison right like (laughs) seriously but you know the no's a vulnerable mom receives you know are also really dangerous for her but for each person to give the no is a lot less violent Mm -hmm. and so we need these thick communities where needs are shared where people know that being needy is not humiliating it's our natural state for large parts of our lives and only a community that welcomes need and has kind of the the density to support it. So again, it's not just on the husband who's supporting the mom, who's supporting the baby, who's giving the mom hyperemesis so she has to go to the hospital. That then becomes too much for the husband. There have to be yeah. people he can reliably call in right. to sustain the mom, to sustain the child. Right, right. So I mean, so I guess are you would you just say that you've just become further aware of this this fact like as you've entered into these different stages of your life? <laughs> And aware of it in a different way, again, like, because, you know, there's one thing kind of knowing it in the abstract, and it's another Mm -hmm. thing experiencing it very directly. Yeah. So for you guys making a fairly recent move, did you, uh, you know, how are you putting some of these things into practice? Well, you know, it's funny, because even just in the move, you know, we hired movers, which is the, you know, we have such a big ask, how can we ask our friends to move us, which is something that's more doable, kind of at different stages of how much you own. Right. Or how big your friend network is, like, can I ask my friends to load this truck? Or of how many kids the friends have and what ages they are versus like, can I ask all my friends to hire sitters to help me load Mm. this truck, right? So there we went for the commercial thing. Mm -hmm. I was pretty needy because I was sick right while we were moving. So I was depending so heavily on my husband who then pulled an all-nighter the night before the movers came to finish packing while I like lay down and was miserable. And it turns out had a serious ear infection. Oh, gosh. But then he couldn't drive the next day, right? Like (laughs) the movers have to drive the truck. He hadn't slept at all. He was falling asleep. And that's where we called in a friend, you know, and we're just like, we we need you to drive us to our new home because we we can't do it. Um, And the friend stepped in. And I think that kind of habit of asking people to step in in major and minor ways, it's the minor ways that prepare you for the major ask. Mm. Yeah. In our new in our new neighborhood, there's a women's listserv that makes it really easy, a Catholic women's listserv to share needs. Oh, cool. You know, they use it to coordinate meal trains for families who have a baby. But it just becomes really normal to say, like, I have to clean a horrible stain out of a carpet. Does it can anyone lend me a carpet cleaner rather than go buy one? And someone does. Or my kids have grown out of using the stroller. Could anyone use it? And someone does. And it makes people's needs visible to each other because there's a natural place to raise them. And I had the moment of just my husband, you know, 
went off in the car and I forgot to take the car seat out. I had a work meeting I had to leave for in 10 minutes. And I posted like, can I have a car seat for the whole day? <laughs> Two women responded like yeah. in five minutes, say, yes, take mine. Right. Yeah. And wow. it's, it gives you a real sense of reassurance to see how often needs are brought up and the needs are met. Um, and you start to go like, okay, like, sure, I asked for a car seat or I asked for a carpet cleaner, but I can't ask for help with the real thing. I need to tell you, go like, actually, maybe I can risk it, right? Mm. Like, if I keep hearing a yes to need, maybe I can ask for need power help with the thing I need most, the thing right. I'm ashamed of. Well, and it, and it can also, you know, there's a weird way in which, like, if some like I don't want this to sound too like utilitarian, but like if someone does a favor for you, you're they're kind of you're kind of indebted to them in a sense where now they can press upon you for a favor like in return. But it's like if you if you are the one who like vulnerably makes the first move of asking for help, um, you know, that makes that person more comfortable than coming back and asking you for help. And like the you know, it, it allows this relationship to kind of grow from there, you know? Absolutely. And I think something people like, if I'm giving one piece of advice for people to how to, you know, share their needs more, be more vulnerable with others. Um, the number one thing I try and do is when I'm together with another Christian, I ask, what can I pray for, for you? Mm. Um, and sometimes it's kind of casual. Sometimes it's awkward. And so often people pause and it will have been talking for an hour and they go, Oh, and then they tell me what's wrong, right? Like, which somehow even our friendship hadn't come up and they, just, they hadn't known who to ask. Um, right. And then they'll often ask me and I can bring up kind of a minor thing, a big thing. Um, but I feel like it's so often that we spend time with someone and love them and then don't actually ask anything of them. You know, think about meeting at a coffee shop where kind of it's easy to use money to solve each problem you have um, while you're there. You want your friendship to be grounded in experiences of, sagging onto each other right mm -hmm. and being caught yeah well I see this with like a lot of my friends who, who have kids and I but I see this with women in general that we do feel very almost guilty for having needs and ashamed for having needs and and I don't know if it's partly because we have such a a helper like mentality that we almost don't want to be the one who then needs help on the other side of the coin but I don't know I, I don't I don't know where this this sort of shame or guilt comes from around having needs but you see it even in romantic relationships where the you know the stereotype is often that the woman doesn't want to like burden the man with her needs lest he goes off and finds someone who's less needy <laughs> and and if you're if your marriage or or you know easier if your dating relationship is marked by the sense of you know if I need something from him that's the death of our relationship you don't have a relationship right mm, like yeah you know you might as well roll the dice and ask for the thing you need and then either break up like or be surprised by have the depth of what you want. There's a there's an Atlantic article I was reading that was about kind of women freezing their eggs in part because they yeah. want to be freer to date without scaring a guy, you know, especially as they're in their 30s and they want to be able to they don't want to worry the guy that they want kids yeah. uh, and they want to make sure they think like, you know, no pressure. They don't want the dads to, or the potential dads, right, to feel like they're being evaluated as potential dads. But this is such a narrow view of men, right? Like, <laughs> how could it be worse for a man to hear a woman say, like, I want to keep going on dates with you because I think you'd make a good father. Yeah. At a certain point, if she doesn't think that, that speaks poorly of you, right? Right, like, right, right. No, it's true. I mean, I, I think it's an unfortunate fact that is based on people experience rejection and then they try to figure out a way to to mitigate that you know so I think the the men who experience rejection a lot of times their solution is just to not date and then you have this whole like kind of toxic almost incel culture and then 
the the women, you know, is to just become less needy, less burdensome, more fun and cool and it girl and, you know, like maybe less human, less human, <laughs> right? Because again, this, this speaks to our idea that like what a human is, is someone who doesn't need anyone who mm. is unconnected to anyone, all their relationships are purely voluntarily and shallow. Yeah. Um, and kind of when we aspire to that ideal of autonomy, of someone who needs no one who's free because no one needs them. We're talking about someone who's profoundly lonely, mm. who knows that if they have needs, like their expectation is they'll be discarded. Right. And I don't want to blame people for thinking that way because people will have the experience of bringing their needs forward and being discarded or rejected as a result of that. Um, but the injustice there is in the rejection, right? Because it's a rejection of who we are as people, not just of that person personally. For sure. Yeah. Well, one more thing I want to ask you about it. And you said, well, did you say you one of your children is a, is a girl or you have two girls? Two girls. So two girls. Okay. So one of the things that, and this was actually a big theme in the Barbie movie too, was like this kind of mother daughter theme. And as I was like reflecting on the movie and I'm, I'm working on a, a piece right now, um, you know, I was noticing that like mother daughter relationships are not really explored very much in the Bible. I mean, like you have Naomi and Ruth, but they're more of a, like an in-law situation. And like, it's, it's just interesting. Cause like so much of the Bible is about father and son, of course, you know, Jesus, the son of God, and you have mother and son too, but like you don't really get this mother-daughter relationship. And so it, it's it's given me pause to kind of reflect on like what is unique about female community and then maybe mother-daughter relationships in particular. And so I'm wondering if, if you can shed some some insights on that based on your own experience and reflection. That's an interesting question. You know, I think, hmm, I think some of the things that are unique about a mother-daughter relationship are what's unique about a father-son relationship, just kind of a different intimacy, which is a sense of there are things I know about you or things we share or questions you'll come to me about that will link us in a way that wouldn't happen, you know, across that gender line for my child, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, just even the experience of menstruation, like, is a thing that's often, like, Right. A big mother-daughter thing because it's something odd and intimate that happens to you as a kid. Right. Um, and you know that there's one person, you know, you, you know every woman in your life has gone through this, but there's <laughs> one person who both has and can tell you something more than what the textbook tells you of just like, you know, well, when, when that bothers me, here's what I've done. Yeah. And it's not even that they have to be right. It's that they feel like they can speak with authority of our bodies are alike. And, you know, you aren't living as a daughter just with your experience of your own body alone, you have my experience of my body to draw on. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that, you know, again, not just in a gender linked way, but just in the the interest that kids who are adopted have in knowing their families and using genetic, mm -hmm. you know, testing. It's it's both the emotional need of I want to know who this person was, I want to know what the relationship to me was like, what happened, but also, you know, there's a way in which my biological mother or father knows things about me mm. that no one else can know in the same way. And even when I have a very good adoption situation and I'm loved and I have a mother and a father in kind of the meaningful emotional sense, I also want that sense of kinship of, oh yeah, you know, I too have that trick elbow, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've lived with it longer than you. And I can tell you something about what it's like to live in this body. Right, right. You know, that's true. And that kind of just brings us a little bit full circle with just the the nature of the body. You know, it's it's not something that we can transcend or, or escape. 
Um, and maybe there is a way in which women have to be a little more preoccupied with the body than, than the men do, but in a way that's like another reason, you know, why female community is so important. Cause it's like, there's one thing they're going to relate to. It's probably that. Absolutely. Great. Well, I appreciate you so much taking the time to talk with me, Leah, and sharing some of your thoughts. Um, My pleasure. <laughs> good. And I, and I wish, I wish you all, all the luck in the world with uh, the upcoming uh, school year and, and, and wait list scenario. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.